This podcast represents the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, and the guests. It should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Steph, should we uh, mention the final four at all? Just oh because God. we are a sports show. What you know, a night. Like, what a, like two minutes. What, what a weekend to live in South Florida, right? Love it. I mean, for full disclosure, we are recording this on the Sunday after the final four, which was not good for South Florida. I mean, we were two games away from yeah. blowing the country's mind and having a Monday night final of the South Florida NCAA final four uh, or final. And it just didn't right. work out so, that way. So you guys will, will excuse my, my sarcasm. Yeah. Uh, I'm supposed to go out today and I don't want to see people just like whining about last night. <laughs> oh boy. You're, you're not a, you're not a Miami fan apparently. No, no, I, I, I am a South Florida fan. I was rooting for both teams. You know, I, I have no, I mean, I used to work there, so I, Preferably want the Canes to go to the final and to win all ultimately, but I was rooting for both teams. I'm, I live in South Florida. I'm in, I'm in between Miami and and Boca Raton, so I'm like split, right? Half. So I'm right, right, right in the middle. Yeah, I've I've been a Hurricanes fan since I was nine, and so seeing the basketball team in the Final Four is like it blows my mind. Um, and and I have family in Boca, so I've driven by FAU a number of times. Yeah. And, so this was, you know, this was going to be a great night, and then it just didn't turn out that way. No, <laughs> not. I mean, the, the first game was amazing up until the last second of it, literally the last second of it, and the second game was like, I don't know what that was, man. FAU really blew that. I mean, they were up by they were up by ten, and then the last nine minutes or so, San Diego State yeah. just kind of clawed their way back and clawed their way back, and then. Yeah. That last ten seconds was just a mess. Right, it was a mess. I, I think I think they had it in the bag, and and it just I'm gonna sound like a like a sports pundit, but it just at the end it looked like San Diego belonged in that stage. Like they were calm, they were more professional. They did all the little things, rebounding after free throws, and FAU looked like they deserve to be there, but they have no experience. That's like, right. They, they were. It, it was those. chaos. Yeah. It was, it was chaos, chaos at the end. They, yeah, they, yeah. they got over, they, I guess they thought they won before they won, won the game. So they, they just yeah. stopped doing everything that they were doing. That's before. right. They, they lost the rebounding edge. Did you see the, yeah. the, the picture of the San Diego state player on the last shot before he cut to the middle, his shoe was almost out of bounds. Like a centimeter from coming out of bounds. You could just barely see court. Between I his know. shoe and the, and that, but oh my god, could you imagine so, if he had stepped out of bounds so, and right, they reviewed so, that? <laughs> let's 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 play let's play because it's sports, right? Well, it's but an if game. So let, let's say let's say for the sake of arguing that he had stepped on the line and they had you know crowned them or won the game and then celebration happens and then video after video shows he's video out of bounds, out. out of bounds, oh my and god. then the NCAA would have been in, in shambles right now, and and, and I could mess. see. It, I could see it happening. I could see it happening. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I could totally it see. It. I didn't even know. I didn't consider no. it until I saw it this morning, where I right, saw that picture right. this morning. Wow. Once one okay. centimeter would have been out of bounds. Wow. Okay. Well, we also, as a show, like and support 
critique for our show. So if you have it, bring it. So anything that will make us better. Uh, the criticism and the critique that I've heard this week is that we have, uh, quote, too much fluff on the show. Why did it take us 15 minutes to discuss hamburgers last time? Uh, is, As a, is that uh, person, what was that person vegetarian? You know what? We're not going to expose our critics. We're just going to take what they say and, and learn from them. And so as to avoid fluff this time, we're just going to uh, take something that we said last time and update it. Last time I used the, the phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I said, you know, we should find out where that, that phrase came from. And I did look it up. So here's the fluff for today's show is I looked up the origins of, of this phrase. It is a, an ancient Arab proverb, quote, the last straw breaks the camel's back, unquote. It's been used since 1655 from Bramall in the defense of true liberty of human actions, quote, it is the last feather that may be said to break a horse's back. And in 1954, in the publications of Colonial Society of Massachusetts, quote, it is certainly true that the last feather will sink the camel, unquote. It refers to one small thing added to another until finally the last one, though trivial, is just too much. That's what it refers to. That's the saying. We will use other cliches and phrases here, and I will look it up so that I can yeah. fluff this opening. Well, I I'm not I'm not a, a literary man by all means, but I, I I kept thinking why straw? Like would, did we have straw back then? So I I'm, that word probably was used for something else, I'm assuming. Right? Well, it's not the straw that we use. I, I think it's because camels were used to as as vehicles, so to speak, to carry straw. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that's the reason. That makes and I sense think now. that's okay. the reason. That one straw. Okay. There you go. And it's that one trivial straw that finally did it. And so well, I guess they used they used straw back then. Okay. Sounds good. Yes. Okay. Alrighty then. So moving on. Earlier this week, Andre Drummond, who is a basketball player, I think he plays who does he play for? I don't now? know if he's he I don't know if he's still playing. I I think he's playing or he's yeah, he's know, playing. he has not been being featured in quite some time. He's been relegated to bench role. Um, he was well known before, um, I guess, playing for, what did he play for in the beginning? But he used to be, be known for being Detroit. Detroit. He was dominant, rebounder, a force of nature in a pant, and I guess he could never hit a free throw and things. That's right. Worse. That's right. His free throw percentage was like 50 something, right? And now he became a journeyman, right? Right. I, now he's I like, think he's playing for the Bulls now. So yeah, I think he came out with something recently right right so on march 28th which was on tuesday he wrote on twitter quote deleting all my social media apps my management team will take over also changing my number time to focus on my mental health if you two are struggling with your mental health you are not alone heart emoji it's okay to ask for help and that got us thinking uh there's a lot of talk about social media and mental health let me add one thing. I, I just, I, I want, hopefully Andrew Drummond can hear me or whoever knows him can relay a message. I want just to applaud him for disclosing that. He didn't have to because for as far as I know, I don't know everything in sports, but I never had one hint or one uh, idea that he might have been dealing with mental health. I had no idea. So he didn't have to disclose it. And and I appreciate him doing that because that's what we do in that show. We try to bring mental health um, talk, make it more acceptable in society and, and fight the stigma, right? And 
we use the, the that medium, which is sports and athletes, because people think these people are superheroes. They are perfect. They are millionaires. They have money, and they should not do it mental health. They should not have any reason to feel anxious or depressed. So I want to applaud them to be vulnerable, to, to to willing to be willing to be vulnerable and to disclose that he is dealing with some stuff. And uh, you know, I hope he, he does much better. I hope he gets the help he needs. And, and a hundred percent true. This is a new this is a new phenomenon in sports. I love where it. athletes are coming out with these with these disclosures that was never happening before. They would suffer in silence. The earlier I think Ron Artest would travel with a therapist all over the country when he was traveling, but he didn't disclose this to anybody until years later that he was doing these things. So th this new wave of disclosure is a good thing. It gets it gets the word out. It shows people that they're actually people rather than just right. a jersey and a number. Right. And, and it normalizes um, having mental health issues. If if Andrew Drummond, a guy that, that doesn't play a great basketball seemingly compared to his peers, and it, but besides that, he's a millionaire, he's traveling, he's got so much money, He's if he can deal with mental health issues, if he can have anxiety and depression, so all of us could have that and could be dealing with some stuff and normalizing it. You know, it's like having diabetes or, or high blood pressure. You know, it's normal. You just have to move from the stigma and to just make it normal to discuss it and to to see it as such. You know, illness and something that well, that's right. the attention and to be treated. So. That's right. It, and money, the cliche is money doesn't buy you happiness. It doesn't buy you immunity from mental health issues either. Just like it doesn't buy you immunity from physical health issues. Well, you know what they say: more money, more problems. <laughs> well, that's right. That's what Puffy says. Yes, is it still Puffy? But I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's P, and then then it's Puffy, then it's Diddy, then it's P Diddy, then I don't know. It's Puff. Who knows? Okay. Well, I I looked into the statistics on social media and mental health, and there is great variability as far as the consensus on whether or not there's a causal link between social media and mental health problems. There is from about 2011 on and 2011 sort of a watermark uh, i'm sorry not a watermark a watershed moment because the iphone 4 came out at that point and the iphone 4 was the first uh, uh, first phone with a front-facing camera and at that point there was an explosion of mental health problems in children especially uh, preteens and teenagers, and especially girls. And there's, this is a strong correlation. And again, co correlation does not is not causation. That doesn't mean that the increase in social media use ha has caused this mental health issue in kids. But there is one psychologist, social psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haith, that does believe that there is a causative causative effect. And he wrote a very long, well-written article on After Babel about this and pointed out multiple different studies that can show this causative link. The bigger studies, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but the, the ones that would show the causative link are the experimental studies and the quasi-experimental studies. The longitudinal studies Longitudinal studies do not show causation. They usually show correlation, which they did. But the experimental studies where they took 
individuals who were using social media and they asked them to stop using social media and then they gave them surveys at a period of time later, they found that the people that stopped social media had better responses as far as decrease in mental health symptoms. So decrease in sadness, depression, anxiety, than the control group, which is the one that did not stop their social media habits or social media use. And then there's what they call the quasi-experimental, where they looked back at the launching of Facebook. Facebook originally launched in small number of colleges, and then it expanded. And what they did was they went to those colleges where it expanded to before Facebook got there, how people felt, and then after Facebook got there. And they found that the mental health of the students, especially depression, increased or the mental health declined and depression symptoms increased after Facebook got there. Uh, there was also a study on high-speed internet in the same kind of vein where it didn't exist in certain countries, then it began to exist. Sleep, homework, socialization decreased. Feelings of depression, anxiety increased, especially in girls. That's where it's predominantly found. You can go read this article if you want. You can draw your own conclusions. There are a mound of critics of this particular, of these particular studies. The critics range from these studies are worthless because statistically and methodologically they're flawed. And that's not something you can just dismiss because if a study is methodologically and statistically flawed, you can't draw a conclusion from it. But he, Dr. Haight uses 300 studies. It can't possibly be the 300 studies are all flawed, but okay, fine. But there are other issues as far as finding a causative link. Cor correlations, yes. Causative, there are other issues. First, we don't know which came first. Did the depression lead to more social media use because of isolation or did the social media lead to depression? And there's no, there tends to be no clinical as far as diagnostic significance. In other words, we don't really know that the increase in social media use is causing diagnosable psychiatric disorders. People feel sad and lonely, but does that actually translate into diagnosable disorders? Yeah, yeah. I think in time there would be, you know, there would be diagnosable um, criteria for for so let's let's call it social use disorder maybe. And and I'm I'm saying that because through my, throughout my readings, what most scholars, um, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists have, what they all seem to agree upon is that the use of social media, it becomes more of an addiction. And obviously, you know, any type of addiction that you may have, whether it's a substance, whether it's a behavioral, um, tends to come with anxiety and, 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 and mutability and, and, and so on and so forth. The, and in, in this talk, I, I hope you thought the same as me, that we'll try to focus more, or at least I will try to focus more on, on, on teenagers. Because the adults, you know, kind of like as a, as a layman reasoning, I almost thought that adults don't have as much time as teens to be on, on social media, right? They, they, they're working at eight to five, and then they maybe unwind in the evening, whereas kids and teens, all they do is, you know, compare themselves to each other and be on social media. And I looked it up. I wanted to be right about it. And... The Pew Research Center, right? The Pew Research Center, um, the Pew, which is PEW, is uh, one of the companies uh, or firm in Washington. What they do, they do, it's a nonpartisan American think 
think if you were in Washington, D.C., and they provide information about social issues, uh, public opinion, and stuff like that, demographic trends. And what they found out is that uh, nowadays they realize that 69% of adults in the United States use social media compared to 81% of uh, teen in the U.S. So the numbers actually do correlate, do um, support what I thought. And my point is that I want to make sure that we understand that an adult using social media is a totally different um, issue than young kids or teenagers using social media. The reason being is that, as you know, the brain is still in a formative stage. You mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, um, that teenagers, the brain is still forming. The frontal lobe is not yet, not yet definitely formed. And the frontal lobe is, is all, that's where all the, the filtering happens, right? The behavior filter happens. That's where the impulse control happens. And aside from that, what's been happening with the addiction, what I'm saying is that the social media business, right? The model of the business is they play on the reward pathway of our brain, right? They're selling something, they get you hooked up and there's a feedback, there's a loop, right? And if we're talking about addiction and reward pathway, we have to mention dopamine. And people usually mention dopamine colloquially as the, the feel-good hormone, not a hormone, right? We know it's a more of a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitter. Uh, it's a yeah. chemical. So it's, it's, it's a neurotransmitter, but people call it feel-good hormone, right? Colloquially. And what happens in the reward, you know, you know, in that loop, in a reward pathway, the more you use something that gives you pleasure, the more you will seek out for it, right? And what they've seen is that dopamine keep whatever increases dopamine, which is whatever it is, sex, food consumption, uh, interpersonal re uh, relationships, hugs, you know, playing with a pet, your dopamine go through the roof. And social media seems to have the same the same trend. What psychologists have, have seen, some, somebody I, I, I read the work, uh, I think her name was uh, Jackin Sperling, and she works at, uh, she's a psychologist that works at Mathlin Hospital. And if you're familiar with McLean, it's affiliated with, with Mass General Hospital. So a very reputable person. What she found is that there's, there's more through that behavior on social media. It's not necessarily social media, but it's the content of the social media. Teens find themselves isolated because they're more, it's a false belief that they are included in that realm, that virtual realm. So they want to feel accepted. They want to feel that they, are, they belong to a kind of society, a trend. So they spend that time unconsciously, albeit, comparing them, their behavior to what they see on social media. And that reinforcement is the liking mechanism. The more like they get, the more accepted they feel in society, the more uh, belonged they feel with society, with their friends. And it's, it's, it might be, it's most possibly false, but that reward, the liking and, and liking my friends going out or my, my friend's outfit or my friend's makeup or my friend's dating, and that friend's got thousand likes because they they are marketing that product. I'm getting five likes because I'm not promoting any product. So people try to compare themselves, and that brings about that that anxiousness, that anxiety, that depression that teenagers are dealing with nowadays because they don't have that real interaction in life. They don't have that that coping mechanism with having relationships. So the life is being lived through a lens of social media and causes a lot of of mental health issues. And we can go on and off talking about self esteem. Uh, and talking about internet validation, right? If you like my photos because I'm likable and I'm gonna post something and I'm gonna see how many likes I get in, in, in a day or two, of 24 hours of, of being being posted. And, and lastly, before I, I let you go on, there's a study I read, in the, it's a British um, study in 2018. 2018, that was like quite a while ago. They found that 
social media uh, they used to not use, but now I think what you find is like it's interrupting interrupting with sleep cycle, right? Uh, people use social media when they go to bed, and what they find is like the sleep cycle have been disrupted, delayed, if you will, and those that sleep issues can directly be linked, not even causal, but directly linked to anxiety, depression, and even physical physical health. If you don't sleep well, then you're gonna have issues, uh, high blood pressure. People talk about like the gut biome now, and everything is all linked to you know restorative sleep. So social media is directly impacting our health physically and emotionally, and that's been that's been seen with more use of social media, the, your sleep quality decreases. Well, okay, so there's there's a lot to break down there. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention the sleep thing first. It may not just be the social media. If there's there's links to if you're using your phone at night, their phone gives off blue light. Uh, so does your TV, by the way. And blue light is similar to the light given off by the sun. And so if you're staring at your phone, you know, whatever, a foot from your face, you're sort of preventing your body from falling asleep because your body is thinking that it's still awake by seeing light and a particular type of light. There are blue light filters on phones that help with that, but it's still the light. There are sleep hygiene habits that include being in a completely dark room, which requires you to put your phone away. So it may not be the social media. If you're sitting on the phone and, you know, watching TV on your phone or Googling things, that also can disrupt your sleep. So correct, is correct. it the social media that's causing you not to sleep or is it just you sitting on your phone and looking at, you know, correct. something else on Google? So that that's one thing. The other thing is you mentioned, you know, what is – is it is it the is it the need to to compare to compare yourself on social media, you know, kids and things like that, and other people? We don't really know that that's true. That could be one reason. In theory, that's one of the reasons that girls may be having more issues because what they found when they found out what kind of things kids do on the internet, what they found that was that boys, when they get on the internet, they're more likely to play video games as a communal thing with their friends. So they get on you know, the Playstations or the Xbox and Nintendos and they get on the headsets with their friends and they play Fortnite or they play, you know, Madden or whatever. And that's their quote unquote social media. And I suppose it is a social media because it's a networking thing. Whereas girls will take pictures of themselves and, and put on clothes and then post that so that other girls in their network will give them likes and then they wait for that. So it's a it's different behaviors that they're doing to get the reinforcement and the feeling of the anxiety and the sadness of waiting for that like for the reinforcement of looks may be what's leading to girls having a higher rate of increase in those mood symptoms. Now, again, we don't know that that's a causative thing. It's a correlation right now. And again... You know, Dr. Haight thinks it's causative. There's issues with the studies and methodology and things like that. But that's just one thing that's the problem. The, the other issue that could be an issue with social media is the, the networking effect, right? So if, if, if one – being on social media affects everyone in your network, right? Because if all your friends are on – or if all your friends get together after school at 5 and play Madden, Right. And you don't because you don't have an Xbox. You're left out. 
So how do you feel now? Cause you're the one left out, right? So it's, it's, and you're the one not on social media, right? Not being on social media actually might be detrimental to your mental health because you're the one that's isolated and left out, right? So it, we don't really know. It's not, it's not as fleshed out as you, th as people think it is. There's definitely correlations, but it's not clear cut as, as we're making it out to be. And these are kids we're talking about. Neither one of us for disclosure purposes or child psychiatrists were both adult psychiatrists, but in adults, adults may have similar feelings as far as when they look on Instagram, for instance, and they see celebrities that are living better lives than them, richer, happier, or appear happier anyway. But clearly celebrities are not, are having issues because I just saw that Amber Heard just had issues. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I mean, the, the perfect, her, but, but right. you know, there are not issues with that too. Right. Right. The perfect example I, I was going to not to drift away is look at Twitch. Twitch was very popular on social media. The guy is a, is a comic. He's very funny. He's on TV every single time. He dances his life away. And next thing you know, he died by suicide. But I, I, I'm glad you brought that the, the example of the communal play and, and interaction on social media. And that same psychologist that I mentioned, Jacqueline Sperling, she actually put into context. I don't know. To answer your question, I don't know if not having social media would be detrimental. Actually, she put the example forward. She said, before social media, imagine like a, a, a 13 or 14, 15 year old girl is not invited to a, I don't know, a sleepover or to a birthday party that her classmates are doing. Would she ever hear about it? Would she ever know about it unless she was directly told that she's not invited? Now, fast forward to now, that 13, 14, 15 year old girl is not invited to a birthday party or one of her classmates, but she, she goes to social media and all she sees on social media the entire weekend is that loop that her friends are having a good time. Everybody's at the party except her. And that's when teenagers, because they're not fully emotionally, the brain is not fully formed yet. So their the identity is not fully formed yet. Their self-esteem is not a peak yet. So everything that you might think it's people thinking about you, you probably internalize it because you don't have that, that, that fortitude you don't have that mental toughness to know that, oh, they just, you know, I'm not their friends or whatever. And in that, in that, to make it back to, to social media and mental, mental health, being on social media and seeing what others are doing. And when you're not part of it, that when it, you risk to have that feeling of being disconnected or being rejected or not being invited to something and feeling more isolated. And I, and I want to go back quickly to that behavior of going back to social media. What, what keeps us hooked on it, all of us, teen, adults. And one one explanation that they found is like, imagine it's this exact same behavior uh, as slot machine in, in, in casinos. Why do people go to slot machines? You know, and, and what they found is that, you know, psychologically it's that unknown, is that not knowing if you will, will, will win every single time, right? It's the not knowing what you will find when you go on social media. And the not knowing is what keeps you going back, going back because there's a possibility of winning. And if you go back to social media, there's a possibility of me posting a picture that I'm going to get a thousand likes. I might get five, I might get one, but I want to get a thousand likes. So I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep posting. I'm going to keep trying to get that, that reward that we're talking about earlier, you know, and, and that behavior, that reward that we're looking at, looking after, it could be anything, it could be simply likes. 
It could be confirming our biases, people that go on, I don't know, QAnon or that go on, on political network on, on Instagram and Facebook and keep liking and, and, and watching the same pundit because it's reinforcing the biases, right? It makes them feel good about themselves. It's confirming what they want to hear. Or it could be just false beliefs that they want to confirm. Or it could be just physical views of themselves being liked by other people. Like, I look good. People are liking myself. People are liking me. Or it could just be the likes, you know. But it's that reward that getting into the loop. And it's unconscious, obviously, right? But you're right. I, I think it's much deeper than that. But definitely the science don't lie. The science would always show that with more social media, uh, teens and adults, mostly teens for interest of this talk, I've been dealing with more mental health issues, anxiety, and depression. But but again, it's a correlation. As of yet, we don't know. Right, right. right. As of yet, we don't know for sure that it's causation. Although I'd love to get Jonathan Haidt on this podcast to see if he can explain the causative link that that he feels is there versus people that have given him critique against the, the the article he wrote. But you know what you're talking about with the comparison and stuff like that is the the effect is mostly in in girls the what boys usually do is they don't usually sit online and take pictures and compare themselves they usually play video games it's a different kind of role on the internet but you're also right about you know people going on there and confirming their biases and things like that and there there's there was a push at one point to create a diagnosis called internet addiction in the DSM it's not it's going to happen. Yet. You it think it's going to happen? You think so? It will happen. It's an addiction. You know why it's an addiction? Because people sometimes tell our kids, put your phone away for 15 minutes. <laughs> we have, we oh, have yeah. Table, so yeah. Good luck with that. It's an addiction. <laughs> right, exactly. As someone it's with kids, addiction. good luck with that. No, it, it, the, the reaction that you get when you, pull the, when you pull the phone away or you pull the tablet away is very similar to the reaction that you see when you pull the heroin away from opiate yes. addicts. You get withdrawal anxiety. Screaming and right, get withdrawal. Right. But the you know you this stuff needs to be studied to to determine whether it's an addiction or not. The the research is still out at this point, but hopefully at at some point in the future we can have one of these researchers on here to explain it to us a little bit better. But that that's right. what we found on on this right. particular topic. Right. So, but but if we you know, if, if not, not 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 to generalize it, but at least one person came out recently under Dorm, under Drummond came out and and he he apparently linked his mental issues mental Correct. health issues to social media he himself right. said he's going off of it because he thinks it's affecting anxiety and depression and, and i would and i would and i would add look as a tip you know this this is not the mental health tip of the day this is a, a let's call it an adjunct tip if you notice your own mental health struggling because of social media or you think you're spending too much time on it give it a break it's okay you know, delete the app put the phone down you know ask someone for help to do it for you it's okay to take a break from these things. I guess you could always pick it back up again. But if right, you feel that right. you're you're struggling with it and you feel like, you know, it's becoming one of these things where like if you wake up, you know, 7 a.m. and the first thing you do is you grab your phone to check Twitter or, you know, I guess young people don't use Facebook anymore or Instagram or TikTok now is, is the, the big one. You know, if that's the first thing you do in the morning, maybe look at yourself and, and see what's going on. And if you think that, you know, you're struggling, you feel sad and lonely and anxious, maybe that's part of the issue. And, right. and one other thing that I'll add in this situation is it's not just 
what I get a lot of my office is not just the, the, the phone thing. Um, I get a lot of people that come in and say, you know, I watch too much news and that's a different screen. It's a larger screen and it's equally as addictive because they it's know media. what you want to see. It's, it's, it's media. Me, it's, but it's media consumption. That's it's right. Media consumption. That's right. right. And, and it's the traditional media, I guess it would be, but they know what you want to see too. Right. There's a science to media. They have people behind, they have psychologists, they have uh, people in marketing, they have a way. It's, it's, there's a science to get you hooked on media. They're feeding you things that, there's a reason to say media, bad news sell. That's right. You know, bad news sell. So there, there's a science behind why they have people hooked on media. So, um, I, yeah, just, I, I, I just want to add, I know we can go an hour on this. I would just, I would just add, if you're having anxieties about your self-esteem, about the way you see yourself as a person, either physically or as, as, as emotionally, and you, you think, you might not know, but you think that every time you go to social media, you feel bad about yourself because you, you might be unconsciously comparing yourself to other people. It might be the right time for you to try to you know take a vacation from social media. Take a month off. Or if you can't, if you try and you can't, then it might be a good idea for you to, to seek help, professional help to see how you can do that. Because that could actually directly impact the way you see yourself and cause other, other issues down the road, like anxiety, depression, and, and, and so on. Steph, I don't know if there's any good way to transition into this topic, but I guess we'll just kind of jump into it. Last week was yet another mass shooting and yet another one at a school, this time in Nashville. And this wasn't even the last mass shooting in the U.S. There was another one after that. It wasn't in a school, but it was still a mass shooting by the definition of what a mass shooting is. And it wasn't even the last one in Tennessee. This last one was in Memphis. So I think we need to mention it. And because every time there's a shooting in the US, there's inevitably talk that it's a mental health problem, that these people are crazy and only crazy people will do this because who else would walk into a school with an AR-15 or a bunch of handguns and start shooting people, especially kids. And we're going to try and avoid the political debate because that's not our show. Our show is sports and mental health. This is not a sports topic, but it is something that we feel is important enough that we need to mention. But we can't start this type of topic without talking about the statistics first. And so we're going to get that out of the way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I, I, I'm glad you, you brought the, you know, I kind of alluded to the definition of my shooting. Unfortunately... We like, like, you know, like as a segue, news sell. So we're only mostly aware of those shootings that happen in schools that are mass casualties. But there's so many different uh, shootings that happened that we don't know about because it's only three people or four people. So I, I want to make sure that we mention what is the definition of, of a mass murdering or a mass shooting. Uh, and people tend to think it has to be a 10 or something. No, it's usually three people. It's when you know, extreme shooter, right? It's when there's, uh, I guess, four, four more victims are killed, excluding the shooter, right? And it has to be in a public place and the victim cannot be related to the, to the, to the shooter. It could, it could be like, a, it cannot be a, a family 
Doberman or something like that, right? It, it eliminates and, domestic violence is what it does. Right, I mean, domestic violence, exactly, essentially. So there's a lot of shootings that happen where somebody show up a place and shoot four or five people, could be gang-related or whatnot. So I don't want to just make it sounds like it's only school shooting or workplace shooting. So mass shooting is four more excluding a shooter and, and family members. And I want to add to this that mass shooting is a subset of mass murder, right? So there is correct. There is correct. A, You're right. There is You're right. mass murder is the the greater category because there right. are right. mass murderers that use right. different means like bombs and things like that that commit mass murder. Mass shooters are now a subsection of that. They use firearms. Correct. Right. Okay. So these are the statistics. These are U.S. statistics. Total gun deaths. In the United States, in in 2019, it was 40,067. In 2020, these are statistics up to 2020 that I have right now. In 2020, it went up to 45,222. In 2000, the number was 28,663, and 20 years later, it's it's 17,000 more. But the largest increase in that 20-year period is for people ages between 20 and 34. Per state, the top three states in total gun-related deaths, Texas, California, and Florida. The lowest three, Hawaii is the lowest, followed by Rhode Island and Vermont. And if you look at it per capita per 100,000, the top three is uh, Michigan, Louisiana, and Wyoming, which surprised me. And the bottom three, again, Hawaii is the lowest, then Massachusetts and New Jersey, which also surprised me. Statistics for a longer range from 1900 to 1970, gun-related mass murder was about seven in seven per billion. Between 1970 and 2019, that increased to about 28 per billion. Other mass murders increased also. We're talking about shootings in the first right here, and and other mass murders increased, but not to the same rate as shootings. Now, if you look at it per country, gun deaths, the number one country for gun deaths is not the United States. We're second. The number one is Brazil. Number three is Venezuela for total. If you look at it per capita, per 100,000, the U.S. is actually not even in the top 10. It's El Salvador, Venezuela, and Guatemala are the top three. And the reason they think that is because when you look at those countries, there's a lot of gang-related drug violent crime in those countries that increase the per capita rate. So there's the population is l much, much lower than us in the U.S. And because of the dangerousness of the countries with related to gun, um, I'm sorry, related to drugs, uh, per, per 100,000, those, those numbers tend to be higher. So the U.S. is not right. in the top 10. But right. but when you include suicide in those numbers per 100,000, then number one is Greenland, which is shocking to me. And the U.S. is number two. And then Uruguay is number three. So those are the statistics. And then we can move on uh, yeah. as far as the mental health issue. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think if we're talking about statistics, I think I, it's almost a duty to mention that as a, as a country in the U.S. and we, what, month number four in the U.S. of 2023, we have had 130 mass shootings, 
130 mass shooting in about three months. Nashville. Nashville was the 130th. And then That's, Memphis became the 131st. Right, right. So, and, I'm, and we're, we're talking about gun violence. We're talking about, you know, shootings in, you know, uh, drive-by shootings. I'm talking about, by the definition, mass shooting. And I, and, I, and I think for mental health purposes and on the scope of our, our discussion, I think people are very quick, not everybody, but politically, there's, there's a convenience, I guess, to, to shift the attention to mental health, right? It, it's, it's a convenient uh, um, talking point when people say, no, you have to do uh, gun control. And the other side would say, no, it's mental health issues. You know, and, and I think, I think uh, it makes a disservice to the mental health goal that we strive to, 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 to work towards, the, the stigma. And I, I think it actually deviate the focus on the real problem of the, you know, the mass shootings. Saying mental health is, is basically shifting the focus away from gun control, right? And I think that it's a double-edged sword that you you not only hurting our goals of destigmatizing mental health, but you're also not doing anything to fix the issue that we're having, like having uh, mass shootings being a cultural issue in America, right? Well, yeah. Well, look, without getting too political in this, the the convenience of blaming something other than the thing that's paying you is the reason that you're that you're using it. But what it does is it stigmatizes mental health. What what can I blame other than the thing that that thing that I can't blame, right? You know the 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 most recent one they're blaming, you know, to the the transgender community because the shooter was transgender. Uh, they're blaming mental health. They always always mental health is in there, but what we're trying to do here is to show that mental health is not the primary driver of these types of mass shootings now you know i just want to add right sorry i just want to add the reason we're doing it is because we feel that not saying clearly that it's not a reason most mass shooting happen would you know would 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 perpetuate that that idea that notion that if you're mentally ill then you will be a deviant Right. If you're dealing with anxiety, depression, psychosis, then you you should be feared. So if that's the if that the messaging behind that topic is that people that really need mental health care, then they'll they probably won't disclose it. They probably won't go seek help because they'll be put in a box that oh they're deviant. They most likely will shoot people because they have mental health issues. So that, that's the reason we want to make sure that we separate those two. Right. Right. So the question is why do people jump to mental health in this situation? And I think. This is not just for mass shootings, by the way. This is all you know, criminal criminality, for instance. You know, why? How could someone go and shoot up a school, or how can go someone go and you know rob a bank? They must be there must be something wrong with them. And I think what happens in society is we equate bad behavior with mental illness, and all bad behavior is not mental illness. Okay, and, I, and again, we need to define what we're talking about here with mental illness. What we're talking about when we talk about mental health and mental illness in this specific context is diagnosable serious mental illness, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, psychotic illness, diagnosable depressive disorders, diagnosable anxiety issues, psychiatric problems that would be diagnosable by a doctor that could possibly lead to even hospitalization or treatment, okay? We're not talking about people that feel isolated, lonely, that have poor coping skills, 
that have personality disorders or traits. And we also are excluding people with substance use issues and that have substance traits that are using drugs at the time or right before or have a history of these things. Now, people with substance use issues are considered to have mental health problems, but that's not what people are thinking of when they say they have, quote, mental health problems. Right. Okay, they, right. They, and, they, they don't think that. I agree. I agree. And, and, and I, just to, to piggyback on what you're saying, most people that have, for what we've seen in the media, right, most people that have committed shootings, they use sometimes they have a, a, a manifesto and then their, their, their rhetoric, you know, is mostly filled with anger, hatred, racism, evil, you know, and, and these are not psychiatric condition. I want to make I want to make it clear. Somebody who's bigoted, racist, or have uh, hatred towards a certain group of people, that's not diagnosable, that's not treatable, that's not mental illness. That this is just pure evil and, and criminal behavior. So just want to make sure that when somebody goes and shoot up a church because of their, their religion or shoot up a, a group of people because of their race, this is not, nothing to do with mental health. Right. Racism is not a mental illness. Right. Okay. And there's also, you know, there's a subset of, you know, the QAnon or incels or whatever. There's uh, a new term in forensic psychiatry called an extremely overvalued belief, which is a belief that something is held very firmly and it's held by a group of individuals that believe it together. It is not a delusion, which is a psychotic symptom. This is a new term. It's being researched right now, but it is out there. Okay, so we're not talking about, we're talking about non-psychotic people, okay, because the, the research is very clear on people with schizophrenia and psychotic illness. They're much more likely to have harm perpetrated upon them than they are to harm any other people. There's a enormous study that was done regarding mass murder and mass shooting through Columbia University. There is a database. Right, exactly that one. And I didn't even know this database existed, but it's through New York State Psychiatric Institute, which is part of Columbia University. I'm trying to find the name of this database. It's the Mass Murder Database, which is, uh, here it is, Columbia Mass Murder Database, which is uh, a fascinating name, but apparently it does exist. And what they discovered was about 5% of mass shooters are related to severe mental illness. And a much larger number of mass shooters, about 25%, are associated with non-psychotic psychiatric or neurological illnesses, including depression, 23%, estimated 23%, with substance use. Most of the cases that they found were incidental. In other words, they weren't directly core or they weren't directly causative. So these are very low numbers. The, these are not the reasons people go out and do it. The majority of what they found was that they had other issues, legal problems. Desire for notoriety is a big one. And they just had general poor coping skills as far as dealing with everyday stressors in life. One of the things that they recommended, and, and I think this is not something that uh, hasn't been brought up before, is to stop covering these things. Just stop putting them on TV because it inspires the next one to go out and go, look, you know, look at what this guy wrote. I agree with them. Maybe I can get my name out there and then they'll be famous too. 
and that desire for notoriety is one of the things that drives these. That is not a mental health problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And 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 the the that database, I think I think it's a genius. And I think you you talked about it. And that what does the researchers have, have said? I think the one that that's led it, if I'm not mistaken, is Doctor uh, Gurgis uh, Reggie Gurgis. I, I guess I'm. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, that's right. And what that's they say is that right. So the the, the database. You know the findings from the database. You know it helped dispel the myth that having a severe psychiatric illness is predictive of who will perpetrate a mass murder. Right? It's basically putting numbers behind the notion and discounting the the idea that if you're mentally ill, you probably might or would or whoever had done a a mass murder probably has a mental illness. You know, vice versa. And and they they put the you know the research behind it and and you're right you're right and they they, they found out that only five percent of mass shootings were with the mental illness only five percent and, and globally mass shootings not guns only but mass shootings right and and you mentioned exactly what you mentioned that you know psychosis you know bipolar disorder depression anxiety very very rarely or if not incidentally were were mentioned in, in those cases. Um, and most people that had a motive to commit mass murders or mass shootings, they, you know, they had beliefs, right? They had a ideology or they have a, a radical thinking and, and they have a vendetta or whatnot. That's not mental illness. That's, that's criminal behavior. That's radicalism. And that's not something you treat with medication. That's not something that you, you, you detect before it happens, right? Because by nature, Planning a mass shooting means you're doing, you conceal your plan, right? You try your best not to be noticeable, right? So how could psychiatry be part of the, hopefully can, but how could we we make it a way that we can detect people that would commit mass murder, mass shootings if they don't have any psychiatric complaints prior, right? So that that's, that's kind of the issue when the debate is being shifted to mental health, preventing, mental health care, preventing mass murdering hopefully can i'm not saying it doesn't have a role hopefully can prevent people that have coping issues teenagers that have coping issues hopefully we can help detect those those behavior changes in 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 adolescence and then provide them with healthy coping coping skills but i don't think diagnosing people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder would have any impact on preventing gun violence or maybe gun violence but it's also incorrect it's incorrect also. Right. These people don't have schizophrenia. And, they don't, and, right. Don't. And it's not. And plus it would prevent other people who may have real depression and anxiety from coming forward because maybe they have one of these extreme, you know, weird beliefs because, you know, they watch they watch a news outlet that, you know, one of their family members doesn't like and they think that they're weird because of that. But they actually do have depression they may not right. want to come forward. And I, I, think, I think we need to point out mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, we're not, we, we're not psychics. We don't predict the future and we can't predict the future. And knows if I could predict the future, I would do something with my life <laughs> to predict the future. But it's, it's, I can't predict the future. Psychiatrists cannot predict the future. What we do in situations is we do risk assessments. All right. But the risk assessments are, you know, low, moderate, medium, high risk for potential violent behavior. But that does not, it's not a predictive model. That doesn't mean that they will then go and do something. 
and it definitely doesn't predict mass shootings or anything like that. And there's no reason to do those things unless there's a, a compelling reason to be brought in to do them. So if you know right. law enforcement brought someone in and said, look, we think this person might perpetrate something, can you do a risk assessment? They would do one. But just to have an individual come in and say, you know, I'm having depression issues, you don't do necessarily a violence risk assessment to determine whether they're going to be a mass shooter. There's right. no right. way to predict these things because they're not generally mental health issues in, in the in the sense of psychotic illness is going to predict them going out and getting a gun and shooting people. Right. And a lot of the times people with psychotic illnesses are not organized enough to go get a gun because they're they have low socioeconomic status, their living situation is erratic. Uh, they're not capable cognitively because they're disorganized thinking to to do these things and plan these things. Yeah, I, I agree. And and listen, I, I want to make sure that we are understood, right? We're not saying that mental health awareness or mental health care or investing in mental health cannot play a role. Is definitely can play a role in in you know in depicting or or seeing teenagers or in preventing self harm first and then the harm in the communities if somebody is having depression anxiety or you're having psychotic conditions that they may think something's wrong whatever definitely can help obviously but we, we also say at the same time it is not the reason mass shooting happened it's not primary reason if there's one in a, in a thousand right. cases okay that we're not discounting it there might be one depressed person out there that wants to do suicide by cops and they want to do it and they they, they want to be famous and they want to kill people and get in that because they've been depressed at the same time it's fine maybe a psychiatrist if they were seeing a psychiatrist if their family had seen something a change in behavior in them if they were teenagers or adults and they'll say listen you that person's acting weird i think we should refer them to psychologists psychiatrists maybe then to your point, during the risk assessment, what we do, we, we, we question during the first evaluation in psychiatric offices and hospitals, do we have access to a gun? Is that gun is safe? Is there a lot? And if there's a concern for self-harm or harm in general, then we, we sign a gun form or we, we send a, a, the police for a gun check. You know, that can be part of the solution, but it is not the solution. Because those are people, like you said, that comes forward to, to get help, right? Those are people that, that realizes they need to see a provider and and we actually saying if we keep perpetrating the idea and you keep act, adding on the stigma of mental health we're actually doing the opposite of making it easier for people to disclose their mental health issues if i'm saying right. if we're saying if the message that we as a as a as a society the message is that oh everybody that uh coming to mass shooting is because they're mentally ill then those that are really mentally ill that could have self-destructive thoughts will never go forward and we will miss out that opportunity of, of, you know, of sensing those out and providing help before they harm themselves or harm others. So we have to be very tactical about the messaging that we providing out there, right? And make it easier for people to seek out mental health help, right? Because there, there are teens out there, I can guarantee you, that are struggling with identity issues, that are struggling with belonging issues, that are struggling, that have been bullied, and they don't know how to cope with that. And they might see a news somewhere, and they might see this and that, and they might wanna act on those ideas. Right, but if we're making it harder for them to come forward because they want to, they will be labeled, then how can we even mention investing in mental health and still at the same time in the same breath contribute to the stigma of, of uh, mental health, right? So I think um, not to be political, like not, I don't want to be political, but I think the messaging that we've been hearing 
is actually doing the, 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 the counter uh, um, effect that we're looking for. You're saying that politicians are saying things that are not true, bad, that's, or, that's, or convenient. That's shocking. Or it's convenient, shocking. Right. As we always do, we end on the mental health tip of the day. Day full of hiccups? Need a shakeup? Listen up. It's Dr. Bick and Dr. DeGrasse mental health tip of the day. We had a mental health tip earlier, but we're going to have another one. The mental health tip of the day, of course, is brought to you by nobody, of course. We still don't have a sponsor. Oh, well, it, it would happen. Anybody out there wants to make a good deed in the name of mental health, that's right we're, we're open to that anyway this uh week's mental health tip of the day brought to you by paul f davis who is a motivational speaker and an author the tip is go where you are celebrated not merely tolerated so do you have an interpretation hmm. of that steph oh wow i guess you know make sure that your surroundings or environment are with people that wants what's best for you and that wants you know your i guess your success and you don't have to be somewhere you don't you don't want it you know make sure that what you the people you're around your, your, your yourself with are conducive to your happiness and to your fulfillment and to your success right so the full quote is if you don't feel it flee from it go where you are celebrated not merely tolerated so the way I see this is happiness is individual. And one of the things that brings happiness to somewhat of a majority of people is the feeling of value. When people feel that other people see them for what they're worth. And a lot right. of the times I get patients that come in that, that say that they're in places where they don't feel like that. And so the tip is if that's where you are, then maybe one of the things you should consider is finding a place where you can you can get that again easier said than done but that's part of psychiatric treatment psychological treatment to help right. you along that way right and i will add every one of us definitely has somewhere they can feel appreciated and they can feel valued if you're not in that position right now doesn't mean it doesn't exist for you right everybody has and don't see it as a place, see it as an encounter, right? An environment, everybody has an environment where they could feel completely uh, value, valued and validated and, and, and that, that their presence matter, right? That they're, the people want them to go around, right? So if it's, if it's not there right now for you, it's somewhere. Excellent. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. The previous podcast represented the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graaf and the guests. It should not have been taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.